Father, we do pray that, that you would have your way in us, that you would expose in our hearts those things that are wrong, those thoughts and actions, Lord God, that we would acknowledge those, be forgiven if need be, and that we would be corrected and made right. And Father, I pray we'd be built up. And so as we look into your word today, Lord God, I just pray that you would prepare our hearts, that you would grant us understanding into what you intended as you brought through your servant, Peter. Father, I pray you bless your word as it goes out. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Well, we live in a physical universe with spiritual realities, and each of us has had experiences in this life, and we have them on a daily basis. And if you were to investigate many of the world's religions, you might find in many ways, shapes, or form, they are rooted in religious experience, whether physical or spiritual. And unredeemed man, by and large, uses experience to evaluate whether what she or see she or he or she believes is true. Now the sad part is the church should not be that way. We walk by faith and not by sight. We're to walk by faith and not by sight. And yes, we do have experiences and we give God glory for those things he does in our lives. But are we to base our faith and our relationship on those things we experience? There are deceived brethren who, for seemingly good reasons, succumb to uh, worldly philosophies. And ultimately, that undermines the authority, as we will see, of the Word of God. Take, for instance, sometimes there are crusades, for instance, where a lot of the crusade is based on experience and testimony. Now, those things may be true and valid, but our faith is not built on that. Our faith is built on the truth of the Word of God with Christ in the center of that. Now, with this in mind, you know, I've seen situations, we've had people here, and we've had people over time who had supernatural experiences, and they would hold to those experiences over the truth of the Word of God, even though they would claim the primacy of the Word of God. And I've seen the stumbling blocks that experience has brought forth in the lives of some true believers. Even we, maybe even in in those in good churches, are tempted at times to rely maybe on our experience, to put weight in our experience. And if we do so, we're going to see that Satan can take temporal advantage of us and lessen the authority of the Word of God in our lives. So with that in mind, I believe we're going to see today that Peter makes it clear in his last letter, his final words, that the Word of God is altogether reliable that it is everything we need for our walk with Jesus Christ. Would you turn within your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1? We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 19. And again, as I've shared, this whole first chapter is really uh, all together. The whole letter is really all together, obviously. But if we, as we look at verses 16 to 19, we need to understand the context and what has happened up to this point. We know that Peter has identified himself as the author. Simon Peter, verse 1, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And these are his final words. The Lord has made it known, as we saw last time, that his death is imminent, that his leaving of this earthly tent is imminent. This is his last letter. And who is he writing to? Chapter 3, he says that he is writing to the second letter, verse 1. This is now the second letter I am writing um, He says, to you, whom I'm stirring up by way, your sincere reminder, excuse me, I am writing to you, which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He says it's the second letter. We know 1 Peter was the first letter. But yet in this letter, it seems to go much broader, as do all scriptures, as he writes to those who have a like faith as the apostles, a genuine faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And we saw the book is about a walk with Jesus Christ. It's about the growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Right out of the gates in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, right? Seeing that his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. 
Also, we saw in verse 8 that if those qualities that should be manifest in the context of faith are, are, in, are ours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of the book, in contrast to the bad guys who would try to draw you away from the sufficiency of Christ through his word, Peter says, but grow, verse 18, chapter 3, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's about growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is about. And we're going to see, and we're going to, as we've seen before, it is through the Word of God, the inspired Word of God, that God uses to grow us in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And this letter is clearly a reminder, as we looked at last time. It's, we need to be reminded. We need to be stirred up. We need to be waken up at times. We need to be able to have the Word that we can recall it later on. It's a clear reminder. It's a reminder of the truth from a godly apostle faithfully sharing, doing the right thing to stir us up that we would call these things to mind. That we would remember that God uses his word to grow us. That we have everything in respect to, 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 to this life and godliness. Everything we need through the true knowledge of Christ. And lastly in this book, there are warnings threaded through. And actually the book is quite a big warning that there would be those who would substitute uh, myths or stories they were, or pervert or twist or mock the word of God, and they are threats to genuine faith in Jesus Christ. So then, this book being Peter's last words, his second epistle, they are very important. And they are a reminder for us that ultimately we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ through his precious and magnificent promises that we have everything we need, lest we be carried away by the air of unprincipled men from our own steadfastness okay with that in mind we're going to see today that the altogether reliable written word of god is everything we need for our walk with jesus christ let's look at our passage first peter 1 verse 16 for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our lord jesus christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from the Father, from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well, to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. That's where we're going to finish today, but it's connected to the next verse also. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. Well, today I believe we're going to see two things. First of all, an implied warning not to base our relationship with Jesus on experience, but to base it on the more sure reality that we all have, which is the truth of the word of God, which is solid and sure. Notice, first of all, this warning. Verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we, were made, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You're going to see throughout this letter, Peter directs and shares that Jesus is his Lord. He is our Lord, believer's Lord. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign one. He is the great I am. The name Jesus speaks of his humanity. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. God is salvation. The Lord is salvation, Yeshua. Christ speaks of the reality of him being the Messiah, the anointed one, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who would reign on David's throne, but would need to suffer for the glories to follow. And Peter says here, 4, verse 16, which means this verse starts uh, and it's connected to what has previously been said. And so what has previously been said? Let's walk through just really briefly back starting in verse 2. It's all together, and we've looked at this over the past few times. We have in verse 2 the, the, the exhortation by Peter, inspired by the Spirit of God's desire for true believers. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and God. This is the scripture. Peter is writing a letter. It is the scripture. And he is saying God has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And then he explains more, verse 4, For by these he has, created, he has granted us to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason, that, that we have the scriptures, we have the truth, his precious and wonderfully magnificent promises, that by them we escape uh, the corruption that is in the world. We become more like Jesus Christ. He says, because of that, now for this very reason, also applying all diligence, making every effort in your faith, it's key. It's not just doing something, it's trusting the Lord and obeying his word, as we're going to see. In your faith, he says here, um, now in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. your brotherly kindness, love. And he explains, for if these qualities are yours, if you possess them and they are increasing, we see that they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in your, the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If God is working through you and by obedience you are obeying his word and these things are being manifest in your life, you are not unfruitful or useless in your relationship with Jesus, the knowledge of him. But he says, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. is looking short, right? Having forgotten his purification from his former sins. We were saved to become more like Jesus Christ. And when we forget that, we get caught up in this life that God is making us like Jesus. He is wanting us to obey his word by his strength and power that we would become more like Christ. Not only in thoughts, but in actions. He says here, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain of his calling and choosing of you. Make certain. For as long as you practice or do these things, you'll never stumble. He's not saying do these to be saved. He's saying as long as you have the manifestation of Christ by faith, his word working in your life in these areas, you're not going to stumble. You're not going to stumble eternally. It's an evidence you have been saved by Jesus Christ. He says here, For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. It's it's wide open. If this is the reality, if you've had a changed heart and God's word is working in you, you are growing in the grace and knowledge of him. You are doing these things by obeying his word in faith. He says, it's an evidence you're on your way to glory. And then in verse 12, what we saw last time, therefore, Peter says, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present in you. You already know it, but I'm always ready to remind you. These are the most important things. And he says here, um, and I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of right, to wake you up, we saw last week, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent and it's also our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me he's about to go to be at the Lord. What the Lord Jesus predicted to Peter when he was with him on that beach three days or, or after Jesus had risen from the dead. This was going to happen now. He was going to go to be with the Lord. And he says here, and I also will be diligent, make every effort. This is a faithful shepherd to the end. No retirement here. Faithful shepherd, and it's preaching at least. Faithful shepherd to the end. Be diligent that at any time after my departure you may be able to call these things to mind. And then we have our passage. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. You know, at first our passage seems disconnected from what he has just spoken of. But if we follow it all the way through to verse 21, we're going to see that he is laying a case for the superiority of the word of God that he is always ready to remind them of these things. The superiority of the written word, the scriptures, the scriptures. Peter is ready to remind us, to stir us up. And he begins to say, look, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
Peter is going to say, it is so important for me to remind you of these things because the scripture is how God works in our hearts. The scripture is what he brought forth. It is his word, his very inspired word. It comes from his mouth. It is not for anyone to bring their own interpretation, but it is brought from God who moved men by the spirit, as we're going to see. And so here in verses 16 to 18, we're going to see that Peter speaks of an experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Quite a grand experience that Peter had, a genuine, true experience that God brought about. That God brought about. Now this portion in verses 16 to 8 that Peter recalls is a situation in which we call the Mount of, of Transfiguration. The situation that happened there. The experience is recorded uh, not by Peter, but by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew chapter 17, Bob read that Mark chapter 9, and then Luke chapter 27, or chapter 27, chapter 9, verses 27 to 36. And on a side note, it's going to be interesting for our study later. It is only Matthew, Mark, and Luke who record this account, and they were not even there. They were inspired by the Spirit of God to share what God wanted us to know about that account. It is the Spirit of God. And when Peter brings up this account, he doesn't share the details. He doesn't share the details. But he uses it ultimately as an example to prove that Scripture is even more reliable than a genuine experience that God brought about. So with that in mind, I want to give a little brief overview of the Mount of Transfiguration here, what Peter speaks of, then we'll come back to our passage here. If you go to Matthew chapter 16, you might remember when we went through this, and Bob read this earlier. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. At this point, uh, Jesus began to show his disciples that he needed to suffer many things and must go to Jerusalem, be killed and raised on the third day. That's what he starts to begin to tell them. He starts to tell his disciples he needs to go to Jerusalem and he will be killed, but he will be raised on the third day. And it's at this point, Peter takes him aside and he is thinking, as we will see, satanically. He's thinking man's thoughts and not God's thoughts. And notice in verse 20, 23, Matthew 16, but he turned and said to Peter, after Peter said, you know, hey, don't go, forbid it, Lord, that you, you go do that. But the Lord Jesus, he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to, to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And then after giving a short discourse, the Lord Jesus, uh, concerning losing your life here, but gaining it eternally, if you hold on to it, you lose it all eternally. Jesus makes it clear that the Son of Man is going to come in his glory. Look at verse 27 of six, chapter 16. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of the Father, of his Father with his angels and then, and, and will recompense every man according to his deeds. This, this is his second coming. Truly I say to you, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the man, Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus has said he's going to need to go to Jerusalem and die, but he's going to rise from the bed, dead. He's going to come back in the glory of his kingdom. There are some standing there listening who would not die until they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So here we have the reality of this situation. Now Bob read... Matthew chapter 17, and we'll look a little bit at that, but I want to go to Luke chapter 9, where we have this account. And by the way, Matthew chapter 17 says, after six days, Jesus took him to the mountain. And Luke chapter 9, 27 says, or actually says earlier, actually verse 28, and some eight days. When people say, oh, six days or eight days, what is it? Well, Matthew is very clear, six days. Luke says, some eight days. And by the way, the Jews would count any piece of a day as a full day. So if you add one on each side, it's some, it's that general sentence there. And that's why we see the eight days there. Luke chapter nine, verse 27. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And some eight days after saying, after after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. 
And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory, notice the term glory, were speaking of his departure. That's going to the cross and leaving this earth, right? Dying and rising from the dead, right? That's what Moses and Elijah are talking about with Jesus. It was departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, right? That's the important part. That's what Peter had missed, by the way, as we'll see. Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. Well, some of you might be that way this morning, right? All right. But, they were, but when they were fully awake, they saw what? His glory. They saw his glory. And the two men standing with him. And it came about... It came about as these uh, were, and it came about as these were parting from him. Peter said to Jesus, "Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles: one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah." Not realizing what he was saying. Verse thirty-four. And while he was saying this, it's interesting. While Peter's making this statement, which doesn't know what he's saying, a cloud starts forming. A cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It's emphatic. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. What an experience. A genuine religious experience where God brought it about. This is the Apostle Peter, James, and John, and Peter is relating to this. It is one like no other person has had. Jesus Christ in his glory before he comes in glory. Jesus Christ in his glory. And the statement of the Father speaking directly to him. Tremendous experience. There's not, it's hard to beat that, right? Now back to our passage in the book of Second uh, Peter. The problem is there are false teachers and there were those who were using experiences. They had had certain things and they were following what Peter will say were cleverly devised tales. You'll see later on the false teachers that, uh, and false prophets that Peter warns of in chapter 2. Those who twist and pervert the word of God and mock it. They promise freedom, but they don't give you freedom. Back in our passage, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter had made known that Christ is coming again, the power and coming, and he had made known that he was a witness to that tremendous event. But we were eyewitnesses, and we'll look at that word in a minute, to of his majesty. Now, the term cleverly devised speaks of wise or crafty. The term tales is, comes from the Greek word muthos, where we get our word myth. It speaks of fables, myths, or stories. He's saying we didn't follow clever or tricky myths or stories or fables. We didn't follow that. When we declared the truth of Christ coming again, which he will, and that we were witnesses of his glory, we, it wasn't because of some fanciful tale. You see, Jesus Christ came in humility and took on humanity and died for our sins, but he will come again in glory. He will recompense every man according to his deeds. And Jesus had said to his disciples, some will not taste death until they saw the man coming in his kingdom, i.e. glorified, the way he would look when he comes, the glorified Lord. And Peter is referring to the event on the mountain here. And Peter's saying, hey, we didn't follow miss when we made known to you this reality. Yet there are bad guys later on in chapter 3 will say, where is the promise of his coming? Peter made known his coming. He's coming back to judge. Therefore, you need to repent. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through a man, having appointed him, right? Jesus Christ. But Peter had made known this truth. And notice he says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's a very interesting word because he doesn't use the word of a testifier. He's not talking about a testimony here. He actually uses the word epopti, which speaks of an onlooker or a spectator, who could be obviously an eyewitness, but he's not emphasizing the idea of testimony, which the word eyewitness seems to emphasize in our language. You could translate this, we were onlookers. 
We were spectators. We were onlookers to His or of His majesty. Indeed, we saw, or Bob read in Matthew chapter 17, um, and I'm going to read that for you. Six days after Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and his, his brother and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And then look at Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Contrast to the bad guys, we actually experience the reality of his majesty. It's actually true. It's not a fable. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he brought them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant, exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. And then Luke chapter 9, verse 29. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, Luke writes. And his clothing became white and gleaming. They saw his majesty. They saw his majesty. The term majesty speaks of magnificence, greatness, splendor. They saw his majesty, Peter says. We were onlookers of his majesty majesty and so we within this we see a privilege like none other a privilege like none other that peter was was privy to peter was a spectator to the majesty and glory of the lord jesus christ the same majesty which will be seen when he comes back in glory and notice not only did peter see him in glory Peter was an onlooker to Jesus receiving honor and glory from the Father. Look at again to verse 16 then to 17. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were onlookers or eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, more explanation. For when he, that's speaking of Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance, or literally the word voice there, as it as it as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son whom, with whom I am well pleased. And you might remember that uh, Elijah and Moses were with uh, the Lord Jesus discussing his departure. And Peter says in Luke, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for you and Moses and Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. And then the cloud overshadowed them. And then he heard the majestic glory. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. So Peter is an onlooker, an eyewitness to his majesty. And then we have the tremendous declaration that he heard. Such an utterance. You could translate it, the Greek word phone, such a voice was made to Jesus by, or to him by, the majestic glory. Speaking of God the Father in context. This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. And on a side note, God is not pleased with our own actions and interactions unless Christ is behind it. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. It is impossible to please God apart from faith. God is pleased with Jesus Christ, but he was also pleased to crush him that we could be saved and then we could have him live in us. And when we abide in Christ and trust in him, his word in us, he is pleased when we walk by faith and obedience. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he says here, verse 18, we ourselves heard the utterance, literally the voice made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What is Peter saying? We had a tremendous true experience where we saw Jesus in his glory and we heard from heaven, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Yet we're going to see in contrast, he's going to say there's something that's even more sure than that. Look at verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure. We're going to see that prophetic word made more sure that it is certain, reliable, or trustworthy. 
Think about the context here. Peter has written these believers. It is his second letter. It is scripture. You can look in chapter 3. He talks about that, how, how Paul's writings are scripture. It is the written word of God. It is scripture. And he has written about the tremendous realities that we have everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. We have his magnificent and precious promises which enable us to escape the corruption of the world that is by lust. That we have everything we need for a relationship with Jesus through his word. And we need to step out by faith, manifesting his character, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. And if those things are being manifest and are ours, we are useful and fruitful in our relationship with Jesus. Therefore, it's always the right thing to be ready to remind you, to wake you up that you could call it to mind. Because we didn't follow slick stories when we made known to you the coming of the Lord Jesus. But we were onlookers to his glory and honor that he received from the Father. But yet, even in light of that, we have something more sure. As he'll say, the prophetic word, and as we'll see in context, it is the scriptures, the written word of God. Brother and sister, at the end of Peter's life, his last letter, and Paul's letter, last letter, and the end of his life, he emphasized, they both emphasized the scriptures as sufficient. The scriptures, the written word, 2 Timothy 3.17, was able to equip us for every good work. It's God breathed. And Peter says, we've been, received everything pertaining to the true knowledge, or life in God is through the true knowledge of Him, 1 Peter chapter 1. And even though Paul himself was caught up to the third heaven, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says boasting about it is unprofitable. It's unprofitable. Peter is laying the case that everything we need is found in the written word of God, and the bad guys are going to assault that very subtly. That's what we're going to see in chapter 2. Everything we need is in the word of God. Peter was an onlooker, a testifier to a tremendous event that Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote in the scriptures and described. Peter was an onlooker. You see, we're going to see that we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have experiences, and we can look back and say, wow, Lord, what you did, if we praise you for that. But we do not base our faith and our relationship with Jesus on the experiences that we have. Because by nature, experience is interpreted by us. And scripture, as we're going to see, there's only one interpretation Therefore, it is absolutely reliable because it is God-breathed. So if anyone could rely on experience, it would have been Peter. It would have been Peter. Yet notice, instead of human experience rather than human experience, or even divine experience here in Peter's life, Peter exhorts us to heed the more reliable, sure word. And I want to read through from 16 up through 19, and that's our last verse, which we'll focus on today. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and such an utterance was made as this, as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard the utterance made from heaven and we were, when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And now we'll look at this next verse next week. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy of Scripture or prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. The implied contrast is we had this experience, but you and we all now have the prophetic word made more sure, which you do well to pay attention to. Verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention. Made more sure. In context, the prophetic word he's speaking of here, prophecy, speaks of that which is spoken forth. There were God's prophets who spoke forth his word, thus saith the Lord. It's God's word coming forth, as we're going to see. But he elaborates that uh, in verse in verse uh, 20, but no prophecy of scripture. The word scripture, graphe, means written word. We get, our, we get our word graphite from that. He's speaking of the written word, and that's what he has given already. He talks about Paul's writings later on as scripture as the rest. 
he says, we have. Now, there's some interesting things here. Uh, throughout 16 to 18, he's saying, we did not follow, speaking of apostles, when we may know to you, speaking of those believers, right? And then here we have in verse 19, and so we have the prophetic words. Is he speaking of the apostles only? And, and you do well, which we know who that is. Well, I think as we're going to see, that's certainly the case. The apostles were the ones who brought forth the word of God. The foundation, Christ brought it forth through them, the apostles and prophets, right? We have the word. But then he says, says here, which you uh, do well to heed. So you have it too, whether it's just them or not. We all have it now, which you do well to heed, which we possess. It's ours. It's ours. We have the more sure prophetic logon, logon, logos. It's ours. We have the word of God. We have the word of God more sure. You know, it's amazing when people get caught up in religious experience. They say, oh, yeah, I believe in the word of God. Yes, yes, yes. But you look at what they're really trusting in and it's their experience. If that is you, you need to confess that. Or you are entrapped or ensnared by that for your whole walk. So we're going to see. We have the word made more sure. We're going to talk about that. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2. And by the way, the, the Spirit of God bringing forth the word of God and thus helping us understand the word of God in, who is in us is inherent to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Corinthians are all messed up. There's all kinds of stuff that's going on there, but God is gracious to address that through the Apostle Paul. And he's going to address, really, in the first three chapters, their boasting, their pride. And he's going to show how it's the exact opposite in the way that he came to them. There was no pride in the way he came. He came in fear and trembling, and he didn't come with wisdom or superior speech proclaiming the testimony of the Word of God. First Corinthians chapter 2, I'll just back up here as a great passage. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superior order speech, or superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming you the testimony of God. That should be in every seminary class for preaching, by the way. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. These are the guys who are saying, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paul, I'm a this or that. We're, we're really great. But Paul, Paul's saying, no, that's not the case. And my preaching and my, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away. This is 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. But we speak, what does he say? God's wisdom. In a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard. This is from God, by the way. No eye has seen it, no ear has heard it. He says, and things which have not entered into the heart of men. This is God's, God's thoughts, God's word, as we're going to see. All that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them. We have this. Through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Notice what he says in verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that what? We might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak. We have... The prophetic word made more sure. We have the word of God. It is ours. We possess it. We possess it. Tremendous, tremendous reality. What a privilege. What a privilege. We have the word made more sure. More than, more than, more than experience. We walk by faith and not by sight, brothers and sisters. Now, notice he says we have back in our passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And so, we have the prophetic word made more sure. The term more sure, basically the term literally meant an anchor. And it came to speak of that which is sure or steadfast, that which is reliable or certain. 
As we're going to see in verses 20 and 21 next week, the scriptures are not up to man to interpret. They have an intended meaning by God. By God. An intended meaning by God. Experience is not that. Experience is interpreted by man. Experience is decided by man what it means. We walk by faith, brothers and sisters, not by sight. Thereby, by its very nature, experience is not sure, not reliable, not steadfast, not firm. It is the Scripture, the Word of God, which is reliable, sure, and steadfast. God's Word alone, the written Word of God, is faithful and sure. A few passages. Turn to Psalm 19. It is absolutely solid. Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ, right? Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making simple, the wise simple. Go up to uh, Psalm 111, verses 7 and 8. The works of his hand are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. All of them. He says they are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 5. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he reprove you and you be proved a liar. We saw this a couple weeks ago in Isaiah 55, what God says about his word. Turn to Isaiah, Isaiah 55, verse 10. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without water in the earth, Isaiah 55, verse 10, and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Psalm 119.89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. There's no argument about God's word in heaven. And that will ultimately be on earth when the Lord is reigning. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 8, and this is a wonderful portion where Solomon is praying and dedicating the temple. And he shares about the faithfulness of God and his word. Tremendous, wonderful portion. 1 Kings 8.54 While you're turning there, remember the elders in Titus 1 are to hold fast the faithful word. God's word is faithful. It's sure. It's absolute. It's reliable. It's reliable. The problem is our faith, not God's word. 1 Kings 8.54 And it came about that when Solomon had finished praying... The, this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread before, towards heaven. He, and he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given, us, has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he has promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he promised through Moses his servant. Not one word has failed. His word is sure. So we're just sure. Tremendous, wonderful realities. Even Peter, who had the greatest of experiences, made it clear by this implied contrast, we have something more sure. More sure. More reliable. More solid. To which we pay heed to that, not to experience. Now, I don't believe, uh, as some would say, when he says the prophetic word, when he says prophecy of Scripture, he's speaking simply of the Old Testament. And the reason why, look up in Second Peter. Go back to Second Peter again. And let's look at chapter 3, verse 15. Because Peter will refer to the Apostle Paul's New Testament writings as Scripture along with the rest. So I don't believe Peter is saying, hey, I'm just talking about the Old Testament here. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Because also in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, he talks about the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to the apostles. Okay, But look here at uh, verse 15. 
Second Peter 3.15, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Amen. That means he hasn't brought his the day of the Lord yet because he's patient, not willing for any to perish. Just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, it's written, as also in all his letters, speaking in them in these of these things, in which some are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Paul's word is scripture. And the bad guys distort the scriptures. Peter is writing. This is a letter. It is the scripture. It is the scripture inspired by God. So even though Peter had the greatest of experiences, true experience, no one could top that. He made it clear by implied contrast that we have that which is more sure. The written word is more sure than any in all experience. And again, experience is inherently subject to one's own interpretation from man. Scripture is not, as we will see. Scripture is not. And notice back in our passage in verse 19, we do well to heed it. Verse 19, and we have, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention. We have the word which is more sure, which is reliable, which is our anchor, which is steadfast, which provides everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of Jesus via his word. You do well to pay attention. To pay attention. The term pay attention here speaks of turning to, taking heed, turning your attention to. A lot of people paying attention to experience and other things. But he says you do well to pay attention here to the scriptures in context. The term well comes from the Greek word kalos. It speaks of something that is done well, done right, done appropriately, done beautifully. You do the right thing when you take heed to the Word of God. You do the right thing when you take heed to the Word of God. It's the beautiful thing. It's the right thing to pay attention. You know, our problem is we don't pay attention. We don't turn our attention to what God says. You know, and if that's the case... What does the Lord say about those who turn their attention away? Proverbs 13, 13, the one who despises or counts as less, the word will be in debt to it. But the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. Proverbs 28, verse 9, he who turns his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. You think you're spiritual, but you've turned your attention away from the word to experience or whatever, your life, whatever it is. Not good. The Word of God is our spiritual food. When the Lord Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, the Spirit had brought him out there to be tempted. The Lord Jesus responded to the tempter. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is God's Word. It is His Word. It is powerful. And you and I do well to heed what we all have, which is the Scripture's. Turn to Proverbs chapter 1, Proverbs 1. Actually, you don't need to turn there. I'll I'll read it for you. It's a shorter portion. Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments to your neck. You do beautifully to heed the word of God. Jeremiah 13:15, confronting the Israelites who were not listening and not heeding. He says, listen and give heed. Do not be haughty, for the Lord has spoken. Listen and give heed. Do not be haughty, for the Lord has spoken. It's pride that causes us to turn away. We think we know better than what God has said. Proverbs 8. Now, I do want you to turn to Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8:32. 8, Proverbs 8.32. This is uh, speaking of wisdom personified. It's God's word. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One. Proverbs 8.32. Now therefore, O sons, listen to me. For blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Heed it. 
Listen to it. Respond. The Lord God says, and he gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Heed it. Heed it. He says, and be wise. And do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my post, waiting at my doorpost. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. And those who hate me love death. We all have the, the, the word that's been delivered, which you do well to pay attention. I want to ask you, what is inhibiting you from paying attention? What things have encroached into your life that is keeping you worries, trials, lusts, desires? What, what is it? Experience. What is it? Zechariah chapter 1 concerning the Israelites who had rejected the truth of God and, the, and God is speaking to their descendants saying, don't be like them. Don't be like them. And he says that to us too. Zechariah chapter 1. Turn to Zechariah 1. You see, if you don't heed God's word, you'll be in debt to it. You'll be in debt to it because what God says will accomplish what he desires. Zechariah 1 verse 2. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me. That's repentance. Declares the Lord of hosts that I may return to you. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil day deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me. That's the word of God. That's God's word, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did, did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the, prop, the prophets overtake your fathers? Didn't it come true? Revelation 1 3, blessed are those who read and heed, those who hear the word of this prophecy and heed the things written in this book. And so, back in 2 Peter, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention. Are you paying attention? Are you heeding what God has said? What is in the way? What is in the way? If you don't know the Lord, that's what's in the way. Because you don't have the Spirit of God, it's foolishness to you. What's in the way is sin. And God calls upon you to repent and believe in His Son Jesus who died for your sins. But once you have the Spirit of God, we need to confess our sins and be right with Him and heed His Word in our hearts. In the end of Peter and Paul's lives, they stressed the sufficiency of Scripture and also threats to that. We have the written Word of God. We have it now to which we do well to heed. And notice back in our passage in the second half of 19, the written word is our lamp in this dark world. It's our lamp until the light of Jesus arises in our hearts. Verse 19, And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the dawn, the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. We have the metaphor of a lamp shining in a dark place. That's the sure word of God shining in a dark place. It is illumining our path. The term dark place here literally means gloomy place. We live in a gloomy place. This world is dark with sin. It is night in regards to sin. It is dark. It is dark. We live in a gloomy place. We are tempted on a continual basis within this. But the word is like a light shining in a dark place. It directs our paths and leads us in our walk with Christ. Bob read this earlier. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We can memorize those verses, but is it true in your life? Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life. Way of life. God's word illumines our path. In 1 Peter 2, it grows us in respect to salvation. 
Second Thessalonians, or First Thessalonians 2.13, it is God who performs his work through his word in us who believe. We were saved for sanctification by the Spirit through faith and faith in the truth. God uses his word to guide our steps, our steps in how we interact, react, act in every circumstance, situation that comes upon us in this life. Every single one. And you do well to heed it. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And notice, it is that until a certain point. It is that until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. We walk now in this time, in this dark world, by faith, believing in the truth of the word of God, heeding it. That is our lamp. That is nothing else. We walk by faith, not by sight. But that's until the day dawns. What's he talking about? It's metaphoric. You see, our times are characterized by sin and darkness. Christ came to shine on those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, Luke 178. We were delivered from the domain of darkness, having been forgiven of our sins, Colossians chapter 113. And while we walk in this world of darkness and sin, God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, but there will be a point where we will not need to pay attention to it until this time, until this time. Until the dawn, day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. We know right now that salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. When the morning star, that term morning star, spoke of the first and brightest. And Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, calls himself, Revelation chapter twenty-two, sixteen, the bright morning star. And although I'm not sure, it appears to be speaking of Christ arising in our hearts. Now what does that mean? We already have Christ in us, the hope of glory. But there will be a time when Christ culminates the salvation in us. We will be glorified. We will have an effect. His word on our hearts will be changed. It's when faith will become sight. We live in a dark world, but salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. We're going to be glorified. We're going to be changed. We're going to be conformed to his image perfectly in that context. Look at Philippians chapter 3. When he arises in our hearts, when, when the sun is fully risen in our hearts, right? Our hearts still struggle with sin, right? When he is fully arisen in our hearts, until that day, right? You can see the picture. Philippians 3.20 For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wait a second, I thought I was already saved. Yes, we are, but he's still saving. He hasn't culminated yet. Who will what? Transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And then one last passage. Look at 1 John chapter 3. How great a love that we should be called children of God and such we are. But God is doing something. God is doing something and we are going to be changed. We are going to, Christ will fully be manifest in our hearts. The sun will arise, the morning star in our hearts when that is complete. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared yet what we shall be. He's talking about glory, right? We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. But until that time, we do well to heed and pay attention to the sure word of God. Are you doing well? Are you doing well at work? Are you heeding the word of God at your work? Are you doing well in your marriage relationship? Are you doing well in the context of the church? Are you doing well in the context of your brothers and sisters? Are you doing well in the context of your non-believing relatives and family? Are you doing well heeding the word of God in every aspect of your life? If you realize you aren't, God is so good. 
he exposes those things and then he corrects us. He makes us straight again if you're willing to acknowledge it. Lord, I have not heeded your word in these areas of my life. I confess that. He'll forgive you. And then allow his word to work in your heart that which is pleasing, that which is beautiful. Are you doing well? I began speaking about experiences. The world functions by experience. And yes, we as believers have experiences and we can look back and see what God has done and we can praise Him for it and we should praise Him and thank Him for it. But we never rely on what we have experienced. We rely on the sure, firm foundation of the Word of God as we trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for your kindness and mercy and love. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for your word. You have said we do well to to heed it, to pay attention to it. I pray that the true believers here today would be those, we would all be doing well. We would be heeding your word in every circumstance in our lives. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you that they would heed your word concerning salvation to repent. They would believe and trust in your son Jesus and be saved. And Lord, for those of us who know you, may we do well. Convict us of areas and times when we are not heeding or paying attention to what you have said, for you have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Lord, I thank you for your wonderful word that points to your wonderful Son. And it is in His name we pray.